We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Weddings are often chaotic, and Mary Jane's was no different. Even like getting ready, getting my hair done by a friend and my dress ready, and I didn't get to have my hair completely as I wanted it because we we're running out of time. There's just like this rush and urgency. But there are some things that made Mary Jane's wedding stand out. For one, she was only 17 years old at the time, and two of her friends were also to be married on the same day. But what really makes her nuptials distinctive is that she woke up on the morning of her wedding not knowing who she was going to marry that day. The excitement around it was like, who's marrying who? And it's pretty weird wedding day excitement. (laughs) (laughs) Mary Jane Blackmore grew up in bountiful British Columbia as part of the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, a Mormon sect that practices polygamy and believes in living prophets. And it was the prophet Rulon Jeffs, an elderly man from Utah, who was going to determine who Mary Jane would be wed to. Marriage is the big rite of passage for men and young women in the church, particularly for girls because there isn't really another path. It's just a matter of when and whom. And because the faith embraced what's called placement marriage, which is arranged marriages, it's the prophet and church leadership who decides who will marry. She knew that she would almost certainly be wed to someone from Utah. She was sad that she'd be leaving the life that she knew, but she had her eye on one particular boy, and she was hopeful that the prophet would choose him for her. But she knew it wasn't a certainty. For many families, it was, who am I to think that I might know better than the prophet? So to fully prepare for marriage, one of the practices for young men and women is to keep your heart unattached so that you are ready to go into this marriage union with a fully open heart to receive the blessings as God would give them to you. Mary Jane's hopes didn't come true. She didn't get to marry the boy she was infatuated with. Instead, she was wed to his best friend. And that boy was married to her cousin, one of her best friends. Mary Jane felt some disappointment, but she was also excited about the new life she'd get to live. I think your body just kind of goes into, like, a bit of exciting shock or something to navigate something like that so all the newness and excitement just gets masked it wasn't traumatic i cared anew about this family and i was happy for my life and all that stuff so i really felt that you know my faith is strong and i can do anything that god assigns for me to do i really was able to put that out of my mind and to just turn my heart to my husband 
And we did fall in love in quite an innocent and beautiful way and had a nice marriage and partnership for the 11 years we were married. Mary Jane Blackmore is one of the oldest children of Winston Blackmore, the religious leader of the FLDS community in Bountiful and the most famous polygamist in Canada. For decades, her family has been the subject of intense media and legal scrutiny because of her father's 27 wives and 150 children. Their lives have been dissected in documentaries and in court testimony. And depending on your point of view, the name Blackmore has become synonymous with either faith-based persecution by the state or, more likely, with cult-like religious fundamentalism that victimizes girls and women. But for Mary Jane, these kinds of black-and-white portrayals miss so much about what it's been like being a Blackmore. I'm Arshi Mann, and this is Commons. More after the break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. I was born, and this is one of my explanations, is uh, I was simply born, and the world that we're born into does feel normal. Today, Mary Jane Blackmore is an educator, school trustee, and author living in Creston, B.C., not far from where she grew up. And she's written a book about her life called Balancing Bountiful, what I learned about feminism from my polygamist grandmothers. And the reason I wanted to talk to Mary Jane is because her book paints a much more complicated portrait of Bountiful than the one that I grew up hearing about. If you lived in British Columbia in the 2000s and 2010s, Winston Blackmore and Bountiful were constantly in the news. The leader of a fundamentalist sect in Bountiful, B.C. remains defiant tonight. Winston Blackmore's name is synonymous with controversy. Winston Blackmore, along with another man from the community, are both accused of polygamy. A polygamist with more than 130 kids, Blackmore has been the focus of investigations for years. But reading Mary Jane's book helped me get closer to understanding this very complicated family and what it was actually like to grow up and be part of this community. Now, I do think it's important to say from the jump that Mary Jane's experience is just her own and not necessarily reflective of everyone who grew up in Bountiful. And that's a point that she's very clear on. But she says that she wrote this book in the hopes of bridging divides that have existed for a long time. This has been, I think, an important step 
to start to talk about and have longer conversations about what it is to be from the Bountiful community and even to be a Blackmore. Tucked away in the Creston Valley and right on the American border, Mormon fundamentalists had first settled there in the 1940s. When Mary Jane was born around 40 years ago, Bountiful was a community that few people outside of eastern British Columbia had heard of. Her mother, Jane Blackmore, was the first of Winston Blackmore's many wives. But for Mary Jane, it wasn't strange to have multiple mothers. I was born into a family where polygamy was normal. My father had two wives when I was born. We lived in an intergenerational household. My grandma lived with us. My dad was very young when his father passed away, so he took on the role of finishing to raise his father's family. His father had five wives and up to 30 children, so that responsibility to the family was very ingrained in how I grew up. And from an early age, kids like Mary Jane had to do their part. It was just normal and accepted that there was work to do. It was also part of the faith to actively participate. There's statements made, idle hands are the devil's tools and different pieces like that. So keeping children busy and actively engaged was very part of the faith, but also necessary in a household where there was 15, 20 people at every meal. We grew gardens that produced most of our subsistence. So preserving that food, growing those gardens, and actively preparing whole foods for every meal took a lot of work. From grinding the grain into flour to make the bread, to going to the root cellar and digging out the potatoes and the carrots and the freezer that had the cow that was harvested in the fall or the deer that the boys would hunt. Always chores to do, always lots of dishes. But growing up in Bountiful wasn't just about chores and duty. When our chores were done, we would slip up to the old barn where the animals were, which was one of my favorite places to hang out. Imagining myself growing up to be a farmer, you know, raising my animals and learning the line between, you know, raising animals for pets and and loving them and then also participating in the butchering of the animals. Even though you can teach your little head what that's all about, sometimes the heart gets confused. Any child that grew up on a farm can relate to that experience. Mary Jane and the other children didn't have much interaction with the world outside of Bountiful, and they were told that that was for good reason. We did have a a narrative of the protectedness of our community and that there was an outside world of people who didn't believe the same as us. And Mormonism has a long narrative of being martyrs and being cast out and being victims of the worldly ways. It was more affirmation that we were doing our work to follow God when the world didn't understand us and that we needed to just be stronger in our faith. From the beginning of their faith, Mormons have been wary of the outside world, and for good reason. Mormonism was founded in the 1820s in New York State by Joseph Smith, a self-proclaimed prophet who said that he received revelations about the true nature of Christianity. The faith that Smith preached was adopted by thousands in his lifetime. 
But Smith's teachings deviated from mainline Christianity in significant ways, including his belief in plural marriage or polygamy and that all other Christian denominations had been corrupted. Smith's followers were harshly persecuted and moved from place to place looking for a permanent home. The state of Missouri even issued an extermination order against all Mormons. Smith was eventually arrested and assassinated in 1844. The Latter-day Saints eventually settled in what became the state of Utah, and for decades they continued to practice polygamy. But in the 1890s, Utah applied for statehood. It was in the early 1900s when the state of Utah applied to become part of the United States of America. And part of the concessions for that was that they would give up polygamy. And so the church, the mainstream Mormon church, gave up the principles of plural marriage and denounced that as part of their teachings. And that's really when fundamentalist Mormonism broke off of mainstream Latter-day Saints Mormons. Our forefathers believed that it was important for them to defend this sacred teaching. That's what I was raised with, that this was such an important teaching that John Taylor held up his hand. He said, I would suffer my arm to be torn from his body before I would sign the manifesto and all this. So we felt that this was very important. The fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, or FLDS, spurned the authority of the mainstream Mormon church and continued to practice polygamy. They settled in communities in Canada, the United States, and Mexico. But their open polygamy continued to draw the attention of state authorities. In 1953, Arizona state troopers raided and arrested the entire community in what is now Colorado City, an FLDS settlement on the Arizona and Utah border, and took 263 children into state custody. It took many of the parents years to be able to be reunited with their children. Some of the older people, my parents' generation, their parents were children at that time. And their generation was raised very much with a fear of the outside world and the police, especially. The police were not good guys. They were the enforcers of the world trying to destroy our culture. That fear of the outside world was still present in the older generation. But relations between Bountiful and Creston tended to be cordial. Even though polygamy is a crime in Canada, there were very few attempts to enforce that law in B.C. When Mary Jane was growing up, they obeyed the absolute authority of the prophet Rulon Jeffs, who was based out of Colorado City. And in Bountiful, they heeded the word of the prophet's appointed bishop, who happened to be Mary Jane's father, Winston Blackmore. I'm just a guy who wants to mind his own business and raise his family, and I have a nice family, by the way. And I do love my ladies, by the way, and I love my children. That's Winston Blackmore speaking to the CBC's Fifth Estate in 2003. I was very fortunate to know my dad when he had a lot more time. He was home every night for a lot of my young childhood. So I did have quite a strong bond with him. Dad is a very charismatic man. He liked to sing. He'd sing in the mornings. You can say a lot of things about my dad, but he's not a hypocrite. He lives his faith. 
He prays very sincerely and enjoyed his family, I would say, truly enjoyed gathering his family around. Kids can tell <laughs> when you're enjoyed. Like Mary Jane, her father, Winston, was born into the FLDS. He was a man who had tremendous responsibility very young. He became the bishop of the community at 26 years old, which I think is absolutely insane. And when he was my age, he was married to over a dozen women and had over 40 children. Winston's wives were chosen by the prophet. Some of them were teenagers at the time that they were wed. In the bountiful that Mary Jane grew up in, work and religion were both segregated on gender lines. I was raised in a community that was run by women. The daily life and function of our community life was organized by the women. The women had organized the school mostly. The women ran the relief societies and the barbecues and the gardens and the harvesting. And to me, those were the big things in my life. The men mostly worked away and worked in industry and were gone a lot. While I remember the women being quite powerful and having voice in their daily lives, I know that they certainly didn't have any power within the religion. Men carry what's called the priesthood. A woman can never hold the priesthood, no matter how good and pure she is. And in order to have priesthood in your life, a woman must be married or they're under the priesthood of their father. Really, you go from your father's house into your husband's house and under his direction and priesthood leadership. And very clear gender roles as far as patriarchal roles, matriarchal roles. Women didn't have the ability to change their lives and help their lives in so many ways. So in that way, women were quite powerless to seek employment if their husband didn't want them to or to get an education if that wasn't what their husband or the church was approving. Mary Jane's mother, Jane Blackmore, got trained as a midwife, but she was only able to do that with her husband's permission. And career prospects for the children in Bountiful were limited by their school. The independent school that all of the FLDS children attended only went up to the 10th grade. And while the administrator was Winston Blackmore himself, Mary Jane says that many of the Mormon women who taught there were passionate about educating the kids as best as they could. But preparing for a career, frankly, wasn't at the top of most people's minds. Because the people of Bountiful had been told by their prophet that the end of the world was coming. And soon. Our school was a religious school as well. And I remember sitting, we were in grade nine with my peers. There was about 13 of us in that class. And we were talking about that we might barely have time to get our driver's licenses before the destructions came. And like that was as far ahead as we felt like we could imagine. What that was going to look like wasn't 100% clear. The destructions, fire from heaven, there would be a time when we would be cut off from the leadership of the church even, that we would have to survive on our own. We were preppers, <laughs> definitely had a few years of food storage available, stored up and access to that. 
We were very practical and and frugal in our lifestyle and it created a context where the skills of our grandmothers were very useful and we enjoyed learning from them as well. But the prospect of the apocalypse didn't scare Mary Jane as much as it might have other children. I truly was a person of the faith even as a child. I I prayed and felt that I had a personal connection to God. I was very firm in my own personal practice. I was very religious and quite quite good. <laughs> so I guess maybe I wasn't as fearful. I just thought, you know, I'm going to just going to do it right and then I'm going to be with my family. I'll go to heaven. We are God's chosen people. If we don't make it, it's because we didn't try hard enough. After Mary Jane finished the 10th grade, she went off to work to earn money for the family. But she knew it wouldn't last long. All the girls got married young, and besides, the world was ending soon. It was prophesied through all my lifetime and my parents' lifetime as this was the end of times, and we were the people who were going to be just adult age at the year 2000, and we were being gently groomed into being more pure versions of ourselves. So every day after that felt like uh, we were living on borrowed time. But there was a trend of girls getting married younger and younger as the times were drawing near, which I remember like, okay, yeah, I should get married, but we were just having a lot of fun. (laughs) Me and my girlfriends, I just got my driver's license and I was driving a group of girls out to do a work crew project every day and just like newfound freedom. But it was because of that the pressure of the end of the world and the end of times that I really felt like I needed to get married because we had to have the prophet to secure our our marriages. And if something happened to him or we were cut off, we wouldn't be able to get married. So that was kind of a big deal, high stakes. (laughs) And it was in the year 2000, at 17 years old, that Mary Jane was married. Unlike other girls, the husband chosen for her was around her age and had no other wives. But she would have to move down to Utah, where he was from. And it wasn't that different than most of my friends. So in that way, I was just like, okay, great, let's do this. We're all preparing for the end of times and who knows how long that's going to be. And we'll just make the most of this. And I really felt that you know my faith is strong and I can do anything that God assigns for me to do. And while Mary Jane says that she and her husband became accustomed to married life, it turns out that the end of the world really was around the corner, or at least the end of the world that Mary Jane had known up until that point. Not long before she moved to Colorado City, the FLDS prophet Rulon Jeffs had suffered a stroke, and his son Warren Jeffs began to take up his father's mantle. If the name Warren Jeffs sounds familiar, it's likely because in the mid-2000s, he was one of the most wanted fugitives in the United States. He's in prison now for numerous sexual crimes against children. A Texas jury has sentenced polygamous leader Warren Jeffs to life in prison plus 20 years. The jury heeded the prosecutor's call to give Jeffs the maximum sentence for sexually assaulting an underage follower he took as his bride. But in 2002, he was taking control of the religious movement that his father had led. 
And one of Warren's first acts was to convince the prophet to strip Winston Blackmore, Mary Jane's father, of his priesthood in order to consolidate his own power. I do believe that our thoughts create our reality. And if you're a group of people that talk about the great destructions and the end of times like pretty much every day, you're bound to create a destruction of your lifestyle, which we did. That day felt very much like the long-awaited kind of phone call of the great destructions. I know it didn't affect everybody in the church the same way, but for me and my family, it was the day of reckoning when my father got the message that he was excommunicated from the church. From then on, members of the FLDS would call this the split. Some people stayed to follow Warren Jeff's leadership. Others, like Winston, went their own way. But Mary Jane was stuck in Colorado City in the middle of it all. And she was confused as to how all of this could happen. For me... Because I believed so much in the faith and the prophet, I felt that it must be his pride, that he couldn't just do what the prophet wanted him to do. Like, all they want is you to apologize or whatever and and repent, and then you could come back to the church and maybe you could get your priesthood back. But the changes she saw in Colorado City made her worried. I saw a lot of hypocrisy. The church also was getting more and more closed off and more strict. And so the people who were continuing to, you know, drink beer and watch movies, which was, you know, the real sins that were going on, were hiding and sneaking to do it. There was a lot of instruction from the church leadership to, like, you don't talk to your neighbors. You don't tell them about your personal life. You don't ask questions. Like someone might get a new wife or might move to a new house and no one would even ask any questions about it. Someone might move in the middle of the night and no one would even ask where they went. And a lot of this stuff going on to where people became very disassociated. The year I was there, through that year, there was a closing off and churches took on a different tone than I was familiar with. I'd go to church meetings. Like we never had these like 30 minute long incantation prayers that I saw Warren Jeffs doing. People have rejected the gospel. The Lord must sweep the wicked off this land. The destructions will be so great and powerful The prophets in our time saw that we would have to be lifted up off this earth while the wicked are destroyed. Then we will be set down again. It just made my skin crawl. Eventually, it became too much for her. I would go to Canada with my family. I was pregnant at the time. Go for my health care and come back. And it seemed like every time these, these church gatherings were weirder. And people would talk about it in this kind of euphoric way, like, oh, I never want to miss church. It's like I go to get, you know, all these messages. And I finally told my husband, as like, after this one April conference gathering, these prayers, it was like a collective prayer to call fire from heaven to destroy the enemies of the priesthood. And all I could imagine was the 5,000 people in this room are praying for my family to die. I can't get on board with this. I had an experience where I felt like I was about to black out and I, I left the meeting hall 
And later I was telling my husband, you know, there's a story of Joseph Smith in the sacred grove where the devil is trying to choke him. And I said, I felt like that was happening to me. There's a, there's a bad spirit in that meeting hall. And my husband said, well, maybe you had a bad spirit so you weren't pure enough to be in there. And I was like, well, maybe. But either way, I'm not supposed to be there. She moved back home to British Columbia, and soon her husband came too. But the bountiful she returned to had also changed. Her mother, Winston Blackmore's first wife, had not only left him, but filed for divorce. Half of her family, her birth family, were mostly on the Warren Jeff side of the community, and then her married family were on the other side of the community. So it really did divide her between all the people that she loved and cared for, and she was a care provider for the community. She said, I can't be made to choose between the people I love, so if I just leave, then I don't have to deal with this. And it was around this time that the media started to take a serious interest in Bountiful and the polygamist community there. And Jane Blackmore, Mary Jane's mother, spoke out publicly about some of the wrongs that she'd witnessed there. Here she is speaking to the CBC's Fifth Estate in 2003. I don't want to be part of us. And I have a nine-year-old girl who is very intelligent. And I, want, I don't want her to be married when she's... 15 or 16 or 17. Barry Jane says that her father found all of this difficult. It was really hard for him. I'd say he had a hard time with it. And the family, too. Like, a lot of the moms felt like that mother was abandoning them. And they had very much, like, a almost like mom was the mother to a lot of the younger women. And it's odd, but they, they had a lot of care and respect and love for each other in their relationship, the family structure that they built together. And while it was unusual, it was theirs. And in the United States, the authorities began to become concerned about allegations of abuse coming out of Warren Jeff's community. Jeff's was arrested in 2006 after a nationwide manhunt and was sentenced to life in prison for sexual abuse. But many of his followers continued to believe that he was the prophet. Hundreds of them moved into a purpose-built compound in Texas. And in 2008, a prank caller phoned the police claiming to be an abused girl inside the community. Texas authorities raided the compound a few days later with SWAT teams, helicopters, and snipers taking more than 400 children into government care. Some of Mary Jane's family were still with Warren Jeffs when this happened. The raid on the Texas compound, for me, of course, I was you know, looking at these videos, imagining to see my sister showing up in any of them or you know, seeing myself only three, four years before. A very small change of fate that I very easily could have been there. Seeing the devastation of these women having their children taken away by the police, knowing that the police were not people that they respected. I had tried so hard to protect my children because they don't know about this kind of stuff. (laughs) And I'm sure, I'm sure, 
with the resources and social services that that could have been handled so much better. It did, I believe, not need to be such a devastating experience. There are stories about a child that, you know, that was taken into foster care at that time that he went catatonic and has not spoken. Almost all of the children taken by the state were eventually returned to their mother's care, and 12 men were indicted and charged with crimes relating to child marriage. Well, at the time of the raid, no one knew the extent of what Warren Jeffs had actually been doing, and and it wasn't until years later that I had heard anything about what they'd found in those records. And, And then I think even now, like, this is a testament to the success of what he did by isolating his members from each other and, I guess, normalizing that people would disappear in the middle of the night, that they were called on some sacred mission or whatever it was, that you didn't question these things. Back in Canada, Mary Jane continued to be a practicing Mormon, but she decided that she wanted to become a teacher to help the children of Bountiful get a better education. My decision to be an educator was in response to the trauma of my community. Our school had been the heart of our community life and family life. And then with our school being split down the middle, we didn't have enough teachers to educate the children. And it just felt like if we couldn't educate the children through our school, we would kind of lose all semblance of the basis, the connectivity of our community. Going to college, is probably one of my favorite things I've done in my life. I loved it. But going to school while raising children was difficult. Mary Jane soon learned about a number of nonprofit and governmental programs aimed at women from Bountiful that might be able to help her out. But whenever she approached one, she was always told that help was only available to women who had completely cut ties with Bountiful and their polygamist families, something that she was unwilling to do. I hope we're getting better at collectively through victim services, through our response programs, whatever they might be, because that was truly a harm that I experienced. I'm sure good-hearted people who truly wanted to help, but through that paradigm and that worldview, they added another layer of hardship rather than service. I could have benefited for sure from the financial support at the time. And there are still women from the community who could really benefit from that help. But if you're asking someone to trade their dignity, whatever shreds of dignity they might still have for service, you are doing them a disservice. You are doing them a harm. And I don't know that we've completely separated those things yet. And I do hope that collectively we're better able to provide service to people than that because that was a very hard experience. But she was able to finish her degree regardless. Getting my degree and moving home, I carried this sense of urgency that I'm sure was from the traumatic shock of what happened to my family and seeing so much hurt and grief around me. There was a a pretty challenging, about 10 years there where, you know, the kids didn't see much value in the faith. The community was very fractured. So a lot of angry teenagers and a lot of hurt parents and 
a lot of hurt people. Because by the time I started, our kids weren't even graduating high school mostly. I just imagined once we could get five years of kids graduating that it would become the new normal and these kids would start to imagine and expect graduation as something that they would achieve. And Mary Jane worked hard to help start up a new independent school in Bountiful, one that goes all the way to the 12th grade. And certainly we reached that and most of the kids are graduating now. And, and it's neat now to reflect that, you know, it's been 20 years since the split and that we have very high rates of completion and very high rates of our young people doing well. Our boys are, are good partners and good fathers in their marriages and successful in their careers. And, and our girls are finding satisfaction and finding good careers and good partners. Mary Jane was the vice principal and a full-time teacher at the new school. But her father, Winston, was the school superintendent. And that led to some tensions. She says that he would make arbitrary decisions around things like the dress code or holiday celebrations. The last straw came when he waltzed into school one day and declared that students would be off for the next three days without consulting anyone. And there were other things that led to a breakdown in their relationship. For one, Winston decided that he was going to take another wife, this time an 18-year-old. Winston had always insisted that whenever he took a new wife, he did so with the blessing of his other wives. But this time, many of them openly opposed him marrying someone so young. But he was determined to go through with it. I considered myself a Mormon up until then. I really worked to fit all my philosophical perspectives in college and even feminism into Mormon ideology, imagining that somehow they could fit together. But it was really through that experience that I applied my own critical thinking to the faith and really started to notice that there is contradictions in, I believe, in the faith. And certainly what my father was was telling us about how polygamy should be lived and how that if leadership isn't about caring for the greater good, then what's the point? <laughs> and also I got divorced that year. And I know that was very challenging for him to see me leave my marriage covenants, which for Mormons is the most sacred covenant that you go into. And it certainly wasn't something I took lightly. And my dad and I, we didn't speak for two years after that. Mary Jane eventually did reconcile with her father, but she never returned to being a Mormon. Getting to a place where I could reconnect with him required maturity on my part to see him as a man, where before he was a spiritual guidance person for me as well as my father. And then to see him as fallible and to see him as a man who makes mistakes and could still be a good man, an inspired man, I'm sure, even if he was a man who also did shitty man things. It was during this time that the government arrested and charged Winston Blackmore with polygamy, a criminal offense that no Canadian had been convicted of in six decades. It has taken three AGs many special prosecutors, and millions and millions of taxpayer dollars 
almost 19 years to arrive to the conclusion that fundamentalist Mormons want to practice the fundamentals of their faith. Canada has a law against polygamy. It was made in or around 1892 and was made specifically against the Mormons. Canada also has a Charter of Rights and Freedoms that guarantees every person the right to live their religion. And I guess now, every person except those of us who are fundamentalists believing and practicing Mormons. This was the beginning of a decade-long legal saga for Winston Blackmore and others in Bountiful, which included the charges being dropped, a review of the polygamy laws that determined that they complied with the charter, and new polygamy charges being brought against Blackmore again in 2014. Mary Jane, who by that point had reconciled with her father, says that she watched him shrink during the ordeal. When I was young, he was a a well-known and popular businessman throughout the Kootenays. And then through his sentencing, he he really struggled. I watched this big charismatic personality become a very small and timid man. For whatever reason, every time it was in the newspaper or the media, like they couldn't get the story straight between the Warren Jeffs group or my dad and his sentences. Mary Jane's mother, Jane Blackmore, testified against her ex-husband at the trial. Here she is, years earlier, speaking about some of what she witnessed in Bountiful. There was this 15-year-old girl who was married, and she became pregnant just very, very soon after she was married. And she was crying. She was, she didn't want to be married. She didn't want to be pregnant. She was 15. This girl's mother was married to Winston. She's not Winston's daughter. And I said, Winston, weren't you supposed to be this girl's parent? Like, this girl, mother, is married to you. Like, aren't you supposed to be her parent? I, I said, how come? How come she was married? She was 15. And he said, well, mother, I want you to mind your business because you are not the bishop. Winston Blackmore was convicted of practicing polygamy in 2018. He served six months of house arrest. That process... Traumatized my family for 10 years, literally. It was at a time when most of my dad's kids were teenagers. We, we had such intense media coverage and presence in our lives. So much public criticism. Our judicial system is not designed well. It's truly meant to crush someone's spirit, whether that person is innocent or not. And in this case, my father was being sentenced for being a polygamist, or arrested, tried, and then sentenced, which he never denied he was. Looking back on it now, Mary Jane believes that the polygamy laws are actually harmful for women who may be trapped in bad situations. To me, the problem with the law was that it allowed the bad people when there were bad people, to hide behind religious freedom. Whereas if you separated the harm from the religion, so just having polygamy illegal doesn't protect anyone because they're protected under religious freedom. The law needs to be more nuanced so that it can protect the people from whichever perpetrators. I was very disappointed by even the expert panels that were called to speak 
on that law and how they thought that that law was going to protect people. Mary Jane Blackmore has spent years trying to figure out where she fits into her family and her community. She doesn't consider herself a Mormon anymore, or even a Christian, but she's a deeply spiritual person. And she's seen both the harms that take place within fundamentalist Mormonism and how the rest of the world misunderstands her people. But she's also seen how the same institutions that focused on her family in the name of protecting women, the police, the media, and the courts, have far too often mistreated women as well. Today, Mary Jane has a good relationship with both her mother and her father. And while my, I certainly think my dad could have done better and should have done better in his positions of responsibility, he he's not a bad man, and... I'm grateful that he can, you know, walk in this town with his dignity. She gave copies of her book to both her mother and her father. My mom has read it for sure. My children, a lot of my family have, my immediate family. You know, I signed a copy and, you know, put it on my dad's desk. And he told me he wasn't going to read it because he... You know, he didn't want it to affect our relationship or change his opinion. But I also know my dad really well, and he's a very curious person. I don't think he could not read it. <laughs> and she still lives in the Creston Valley, serving the children of Bountiful as a school trustee. She's not a Mormon, but she's proud of her roots. And while she still sees a lot of misogyny in the fundamentalist culture, she sees a number of people, including young Mormon fundamentalists, trying to change that. One attribute of people who turned their hearts and their lives and also their critical thinking over to a man, to a prophet, was that you didn't really have to take accountability for your own self. There was a lot of comfort for people in that. It's like, no, if I just follow my priesthood leader, whether it's my husband, and for the husbands, it was the prophet or the bishop. If I just follow these teachings, then I will be, I won't be responsible for them. So for many people in the church and community, coming to a place where you're actually holding yourself accountable for your decisions is a big part of, I'll say it, unfucking a cult brain. <laughs> And she does see the environment that she was raised in as something of a cult. I do, in the way that I view colonial Christianity, a cult. Many in the community, and probably myself included, would say it wasn't a cult in the old days, that it became more of a cult. And especially watching the practices of Warren Jeffs, the complete isolation if you want to call that a cult, then I'd say that's the extreme end of the big C cult. And yet, I know so many people who grew up in kind of a colonial Christianity, whether it was Catholicism, I'm not saying all Catholicism, but different Protestant or Baptist mindsets, where there is a layer of harm that 
might take you 20, 30 years to be able to figure out, oh, the reason I struggle with asking for what I need is because I was taught service to others first, yourself last. Like I was never able to value myself. She says for a long time, during the years after she left Mormonism, she viewed the lives of the women who had raised her, who lived as obedient polygamists, as somehow lesser. But now, she sees things differently. Those 10 years of leaving the faith and deprogramming my brain, in some sense, I think I did throw the baby out with the bathwater. I just felt that women of the faith were small and simple and that if they had the opportunity to be modern women and be educated, that they never would have chosen a life of service and that my grandmother didn't get to to have her last wishes of traveling across Canada and seeing the world because she had given her entire life to her family and her children. Where through experiences of maturing and seeing the world differently and even reflecting on the life of my grandmother, which truly was a beautiful life, I've come to see that a life of service to one's family is a beautiful life. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Mary Jane Blackmore, John Krakauer, the CBC's Fifth Estate, and many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me, Noor Azria, and Jordan Cornish. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglazi. And our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything else, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join.